Swan is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening and welcome to Bring It On, a Best in Indiana Journalism Award-winning public affairs program celebrating 11 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Given the very favorable reviews from last week's interview with former Bring It On contributor, Dr. Khalil Muhammad, who is also a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. The Bring It On crew presents a special back-to-back archive broadcast highlighting two memorable interviews from 2010, featuring Dr. Khalil Muhammad and Renford Reese, professor and author at California State Polytechnic University at Pomona. These two respected guests are speaking on negative black male stereotypes and how black men themselves may be perpetuating such negative views. Professor Renford Reese examines how young African-American males have unwittingly accepted a false model of black masculinity. And in-studio guest Khalil Muhammad, an Indiana University professor of history at the time, offers his own insights on this topic as we try together to figure out how to solve the problem. Here now are co-anchors Jim Sims, Ann Williams, conducting that interview originally aired November 13th, 2006. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, just to um, get things started, I always kind of take things personally, but for the, um, for the listeners um, who are listening online and also probably in their cars and the radios, to begin, I'd like to talk about the American Paradox Young Black Men, and I'm from the younger generation, so I take that one personally. But um, exactly for those who are listening, what was your what were your intentions within this and within writing this book and and doing many of the studies? What are you trying to enlighten people about? Well, when I um, originally wrote this book, I had uh, visited the Cape Coast of Ghana and I was in the Elmina Slave Castle, and I remember being in this holding cell where they held two hundred uh, slaves at one time. And I remember going down to the, the dungeon to the gate of no return, and I peered out and I looked out and I reflected on my ancestors going out on these ships never to return to the motherland. And that day I was angry, and that night I was angrier. Uh, initially I was angry at the Europeans, the, the evil the Europeans had perpetrated on my ancestors, but when I got to my lodge that night I became angry at a generation of young blacks who basically taken for granted the strides and trials and tribulations of that generation. And so I scribbled the first paragraphs of American Paradox, Young Black Men, the thesis of which suggests that young black men have embraced one monolithic model of black masculinity, and that's the gangster thug model. And the enthusiastic embrace of this model is detrimental to an entire generation of young black men, manifested in anti-intellectualism, underachievement in school, and gang violence. We see the consequences of this uh, in the criminal justice system when you have one out of four young black men from the ages of 16 to 26 that have some 
criminal justice system, whether they're on parole, on probation, in jail, in prison. And so I went out and I did a survey of 756 young black men in Atlanta and Angeles. And uh, I wanted to know, these young men were from the ages of 15 and 19, and I gave them a list of icons, black icons. And I said, I want you to rate whether these icons are real black men or fake. Put one if you think they're real, put three if you think they're fake, put two if you think they're in between. And I gave them a list. I gave them uh, Tupac Shakur, uh, Will Smith, Tiger Woods, Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, Mike Tyson, uh, David Robinson. And all the ones who had basically, all of the individuals who had basically uh, embraced the rebellious uh, thug mindset were the ones that uh, these young men gave uh, the realness scores to. And the ones uh, such as David Robinson, for instance, he was uh, looked upon as being uh, not being real, looked upon as being fake. And so I went back to interview and asked why, and some of the young men said, well, he's, he doesn't have any tattoos or he's never been in trouble with the law. So... This became the genesis, this became the basis, the backbone of uh, the research and the methodology for the uh, book, American Paradox, Young Black Men. Professor Reese, uh, I'm Jim Sims, one of the co-hosts. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Okay, and that was Shahara Williams, also the other co-host. And we also have, I think you heard in the intro, um, Dr. Khalil Muhammad, who's a IU prof- or a professor of history at Indiana University. Um, Speaking of the survey that you mentioned, 756, um, I was wondering, uh, that struck me that that was a rather small sample um, to, to draw some conclusions um, um, that, that, of course, you substantiated in the books, and I, I agree with those. Um, but I was wondering, didn't you think that's an awful small sample, and is it representative enough, and have you been challenged at all um, from that angle? Well, I mean, I think from uh, a method, methodology uh, standpoint, I don't think it's a, a small sample. I, what I was doing was trying to get some qualitative research. People say, well, how did you operationalize what was real and what was fake? I didn't operationalize it. I went back to interview uh, these young men to ask them what they felt uh, was real and what they felt was fake. And uh, so I've not uh, really encountered uh, much uh, criticism about the, uh, the sample size. 756 in terms of uh, social science uh, quasi-research uh, uh, is, uh, I think, a decent uh, sample size. And, and I don't disagree. I just it just struck me as small, in particular when we were talking about L.A. and Atlanta. Um, <clears throat> but enough of that. I uh, was also wondering um, the results of some of your research and, and other people research as well have basically have some of the same conclusions. Um, we know the societal effects on young African Americans. Um, we know some of the things that we could do to reverse that. But it seems the trend um, keeps going spiraling downward. Um, I was kind of wondering, is there an educational aspect or agenda, or how can we reverse this trend? And I was also wondering why more of your larger African-American civil rights organizations um, don't embrace these more in order to to maybe educate the masses. Well, I think in terms of uh, solutions, I think, first of all, we must uh, acknowledge, blacks must acknowledge that we have embraced a culture of underachievement. I mean, it's just like any uh, other 12-step program. First of all, we must admit, we must come out and say we've uh, embraced this culture, culture of uh, underachievement. And then I think blacks must work vigorously to embrace a culture of achievement. And you're absolutely right. Black policymakers and civil rights organizations should increase pressure on the government to invest in schools in low-income areas. 
And uh, you figure if we can spend and invest $300 million on fighting an unjustified war in Iraq, we definitely can uh, invest in the inner cities. And then I think young black men should be encouraged to read more. Uh, you are what you read. Uh, I think this has some correlation with your cognitive uh, capacity uh, in large part. Uh, and then they must be taught that there's nothing soft, weak, or white about uh, or unmanly about excelling in school. Uh, they must be taught that uh, not to make excuses for the things that they control, that, that, that they can control, like reading and studying. And then they must be taught that there are people around the world who are worse off than they are. So I think there are, I mean, we need to educate uh, these, young, these young men and uh, young blacks in general. I mean, I was at a, um, a black college expo a couple of years ago, and uh, it was uh, about 40 uh, schools there. And I remember seeing all these young African-Americans. They were walking around. They were baggy pants. They, the shirts were out. And, you know, clearly they had embraced the hip-hop gangster thug uh, persona. And so I remember just sitting there uh, counting for about 20, 25 minutes, about 100 African-American men that walked past me. And I only saw one out of uh, about 50 young men that had a, a slacks on and a tie. And so I walked up, walked up to him, and I asked, I said, uh, excuse me, could you tell me why you're wearing a, uh, the slacks and a tie? He said, well, somebody made it their business to come to my high school and tell me that this is important. Making a, a, a good impression is important. This is our college. This is the beginning of the rest of my life. And so I was wondering what happened to the other uh, 49 young men that uh, were not dressed what I, in, in what I would say an appropriate manner. Now, asking, going back to the the term, um, <clears throat> excuse me, culture of underachievers, um, what, what I ask is what has necessarily caused, what's the cause of this culture of underachievers, and is it um, due to maybe things that have occurred within history? And I would also like to open this question to Dr. Muhammad as well. Do you have any type of idea or theory of what exactly is causing this, this culture of underachievers? Uh, thanks for uh, allowing me to uh, jump in to this conversation. Uh, I also want to say I appreciate uh, Professor Reese's uh, work in this area. There are far too many African-American scholars who are engaging directly in issues um, of, uh, of poverty, of inequality, um, and I, I, even on the side of what uh, Professor Reese calls the internal problems, and, and that is the problems that African-Americans contribute to um, in their own um, uh, lower position in American society. Uh, to the question of uh, what historical factors um, contribute to this culture of failure, well, I take usually the big picture perspective on such a question. And for me, the question is what perpetuates a culture of failure in American society, rather than simply asking the question, what is it about African Americans that perpetuates this? Um, it's also troubling for me when we think about um, African Americans' um, culture of rebelliousness or the stylings of, of hip-hop, tattoos, etc., when uh, everyone who is listening to this knows that those are not specific to African Americans. Um, and yet, uh, the association with all things bad in American society is oftentimes attributed to, to black people. Uh, William Vandenberg, a historian of uh, black nationalism and black culture, wrote a book called Hoodlums, uh, subtitled The Social Banditry in America. 
And he traces this phenomenon back to, of course, um, uh, England in the 16th century, back to Shakespearean plays on Othello, back to travelers' accounts among Europeans who first considered themselves discovering the primitives of Africa. Uh, and the very cultural definition and resonance of blackness since that time has has been assigned to this bad or evil category. And yet we continue to perpetuate that. And, and so this is not about Dr. Reese uh, dealing with that from a scholarly perspective. It's about a problem that is much larger um, and far deeper than we can even begin to unpack um, at this point in time. Now, to the question of do we resign ourselves to accept that fate? Absolutely not. I think I think that that's what Dr. Reese is doing um, in trying to engage this um, from, from an internalist perspective, from what African-American young men can do on their own. Uh, but I, I, I try to at least uh, step back for a moment and suggest, and I'll, I'll say this specifically, which is that there are, are hundreds of thousands of young white men in this country um, who pass through that stage of rebelliousness, um, who commit petty crimes, uh, who dress in, in what was once called grunge and in the 80s was called punk. Um, and it includes uh, many of the markings that Professor Reese has denoted for African Americans. And I would at least suggest that part of what's missing in the contemporary story for us is, is the continuation of the absence of um, a kind of free pass, so to speak, a cultural free pass. Our young men don't get a free pass to pass through a stage of rebelliousness. Um, they don't get a free pass when they run into uh, agents of law enforcement for, in, in some instances, in some instances, not committing crimes. I mean, I'm not excusing that behavior. They don't get a free pass. We know that there is disparity within the criminal justice system, and Professor Reese knows this very well in his latest mm -hmm. book. Um, so for me, it's important to talk about both sides of the problem um, and, and to make sure that I don't let uh, what Du Bois considered um, an urgent matter when he wrote 100 years ago, white folks off the hook, uh, when talking about the origins of, of black behavior in American society. Okay, Dr. Reese, um, we also would like to, um, we have about 10 minutes or so left, and we kind of like to touch on the other book as well. Um, but before we do that, um, uh, I was looking at your Colorful Flags Human Relations Model Program. Um, could you, you know, here in a minute or so, um, highlight with us what that program's about um, and, and tell us about it. I thought it was very simplistic, and yet it looks fairly effective. Right. Back in 1992, I was uh, chosen as a uh, USC uh, University of Southern California Presidential Fellow. There were 12,000 of uh, graduate and professional students chosen, or uh, 24 students chosen out of eligible 12,000 graduate and professional students to participate in a rigorous leadership training program. And all of us had to come up with a community-based project. My project stemmed out of my dissatisfaction with race relations in society. We had just had the riots here in Los Angeles. And it was uh, based on a young lady by the name of Latasha Harlan. She was 14 years old. She walked into a Korean market back in 1991. She picked up a bottle of orange juice. She put it in her backpack before she paid for it. The Korean woman behind the counter was so furious that the young lady put the orange juice in her backpack before she paid for it that they got into a fight. A scuffle ensued. The girl got ready to walk out of the store. The woman picked up a gun and shot her in the back of the head. Now, this is just as big as the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles. It just didn't get as much national or international coverage. So I asked myself after this tragic event, I said, can situations like this be diffused before they escalate into violence? And I said, what if, what if, not to say who was the culprit, what, not to say who was the blame, what if one had walked into that Korean store that morning and said, 
Anyahaseo, hello, how you doing? And Korean purchased something and walked out and said goodbye, have a nice day. We say we value diversity, but we have all these people that live beside us, work beside us, study beside us, and we can't even say hello in their language. So I remember, just to give you a poignant anecdote, dropping my car off at a Korean auto mechanic shop. I came back about four hours later. I asked this elderly Korean gentleman, did you service my muffler? He said, yes. I said, did you service my transmission? He said, yes. I put my hand out. I said, kumap simnida, which is thank you very much in Korean. And first his, his mouth dropped open and his eyes started to water because he didn't care about my syntax, my mechanics. The only thing he cared about was I was using the most intimate vehicle that we know, which is language to say I care something about you and your culture. So the Colorful Flags program teaches five basic statements of common courtesy. Hello, how are you doing? What is your name? Thank you. You're welcome. Please excuse me. Goodbye. Have a nice day. In the five most spoken languages in a particular community. In an effort to, one, reduce ethnic mistrust, two, stimulate cultural curiosity, and three, empower the ESL students. And so when we talk about black consciousness, I think we need to be, as blacks, we need to be Paul Robeson-like. Robeson had no boundaries. He uh, aligned himself with the oppressed people of the world. Paul Robeson spoke 21 different languages. And so what does, what does being black mean in 2006? And I think we have to expand our, uh, our identity and really look at ourselves as global citizens. Okay, thank you again. I um, answer. We still have more more to talk about. Um, one last thing about this book, and I want to share with our listeners that we're talking this evening with Dr. Renford Reese, and he is the author of several books. And one that we're talking about in particular is entitled "American Paradox: Young Black Men." Um, and we'll also refer to another book here in a few minutes, I believe, and it is entitled "Prison Race," um, and it's um printed by Carolina Academic Press, and we're also joined by Dr. Khalil Muhammad, an IU professor of history. Dr. Reese, one last thing as far as this book before we move on. I was, again, very interested in the realness scale, and I understand the problems there or the root cause, if you will, but I also know how difficult it's going to be in order to promote or, or be accepted by the youth persons such as a David Robinson or a Tiger Woods, as opposed to, and no disrespect intended to these gentlemen, but an Iver, I, Alan Iverson or a Tupac Shakur. Um, you have any comments on that before we move on? Well, I mean, who? I think that's up to us. I mean, I think uh, people should be lionizing uh, Dr. Muhammad on the, uh, on, the, on the telephone right now. This man is uh, articulate, clearly an articulate scholar. I mean, they should be lionizing uh, people like Tavis Smiley. It is up to us. It's up to our community. It's up to our black churches to, 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 to uh, uh, revere and put these people up. And so we can't just uh, give in to, uh, to uh, popular culture. I mean, if you look at BET, VH1, MTV, they have an insatiable appetite for urban culture. And so young black men have embraced all of these what I call symbols of defiance. But ironically, when all of these mainstream um, uh, outlets embrace these symbols of defiance, they sanitize it, they sterilize it, which makes young black men want to embrace more unruly symbols of uh, defiance. It reminds me of the 14-year-old here in Pomona. He, get, he gets uh, locked up. Uh, they take him down to the police station. They slap him, slap him on the wrist. They call his mother up to, uh, to, to come pick him up, and he said, no, no, I don't want to uh, ride home uh, with my mom. I want to ride home in a police car. He wanted his friends to see him riding home in a police car. That's where we are right now in 2006. Look, I go to the prisons. My latest book, Prison Race, is uh, based on a double entendre. One, there has been a race to incarcerate in the last two decades in the United States, and there's one race 
that has been um, significantly influenced, impacted by unfair, unjust criminal justice policies. There's no doubt about it that the system is unkind to blacks, especially young black men. Uh, Dr. Muhammad had it right. But we're walking into America's trap, right? If you want to be a gangster thug, I've given at least 20 lectures in the prison system in the last three years since I wrote American Paradox. That's where the real thugs are, guys who, who serve in a dime, 10 years, a dub, 20 years, a kickstand, stressed out for life. I'm trying to get at these young men. American Paradise Young Black Men is a manifesto to get these young black men to wake up before they wind up in the prison industrial complex. Can I, uh, can I respond to that? Um, and I think that uh, what you're doing is, is, is fabulous. Um, and what troubles me is, has nothing to do with the dialogue that you're having. Uh, within those prisons. Uh, what troubles me is what is, is some of the major claims you make in prison race about the, in, the unwillingness and the inability of policymakers to respond to the social crisis that are devastating the very communities where these young men come from. And I know that you know um, from your interviews the conditions that these young men grow up in, and these young women who are fastly becoming um, uh, a statistical outlier within the criminal justice system. Um, so so, so the, the, the realities that are there that, that we are shedding light on, that people like Mark Maurer have been going to the mat uh, for our community on in, in, in addressing town hall meetings and, and bringing these issues to light, have made very little impact. And that, that is actually the, the, the basic question that you raised in your work. And so for me, it's, it's difficult to engage young men if I don't have an answer to a hundred year cycle of telling them that you're not wanted here, that you stand in the way of America's greatness, um, and they can look around and see a system that is constantly working at odds to the very principles of, of humanitarianism, of democracy. I mean, and so, it, it, so I'm not, this is not a question, I mean, it's not a, a, a disagreement with the argument in any way, shape, or form. It's really an, a, an expression of outrage and frustration uh, with the, the unwillingness of our, not, not just our politicians, but our, our public um, to care, to care about the humanity of these people. So the very yeah, rebelliousness... Yeah, right. We, we talk about... I mean, we just had an election. Everyone talks about public safety, whether they're Democrats, whether they're Republicans, liberals, or conservatives. But politicians fail to realize that there is a correlation between uh, public safety and recidivism. In other words, if recidivism is high, public safety is not enhanced, it's only undermined. And so we have 97% of our inmates that will parole one day. And uh, we're asking them to jump hurdles while wearing ankle weights. We have a system, let's say the 1998 Higher Education Act, which says that if a person serves his or her time for a drug violation, they come out, they go to drug rehabilitation, they still cannot get access to uh, financial aid, they cannot get public housing, they cannot get food stamps. So what are the politicians saying? I think you're absolutely right. You have all of these uh, draconian... Uh, uh, barriers that have been constructed for to really to, to impede uh, black male achievement in, in, in American society. So I don't disagree with you. Uh, the first book looked at the internal and external influences on the black male identity. Prison race points directly at the unkind uh, criminal justice system. It asks, it, it, it asks two fundamental questions. 
one, why have politicians embraced counterproductive uh, criminal justice policies? And two, what have been the consequences of those policies? Do you think, you talk about <clears throat> the, um, the connection between uh, criminal justice policies and how it affects the African male population. How much would you say that the, the different ideologies that black males pick up from the media, which are some things that you talk about in the American Paradox, how much of do you think those same men that you interviewed and that you surveyed are affected by what they believe is the male identity? And do you think that um, those who believe in those, I those identities do you feel like they're more prone to be affected by um, the issues that are brought up within prison race? Yeah, I think I think they are. I think it's overwhelming. I mean, if you look at Allen Iverson, Allen Iverson is a, uh, in many ways, he's a very decent and good role model. But that's not his persona. Uh, his persona is rebellious. His persona is I don't care. His the bad persona boy. is I have all these tattoos. So. What I'm saying is if the 16, 17-, 18-year-old young black man goes out and he embraces the same symbols of defiance as Allen Iverson, what they do is they stunt their um, ability, they stunt their mobility in American society. Allen Iverson is a 29-year-old multimillionaire. And so who's going to give you um, a job interview? Who's going to give you a job for having all these multiple tattoos? Who's going to give you a job for having all these multiple piercings? So what? What I'm saying is we must uh, find a way to embrace this uh, double consciousness that uh, Du Bois talked about. I mean, it, it uh, uh, makes me want to holler. Uh, Nathan McCall says that when he grew up, the way you got uh, credit in the, his neighborhood was your ability to break somebody's nose. Well, when you go on an interview, nobody's going to give you extra credit points for your capacity to break somebody's nose. But in the hood, in the, in the community, this is what is, uh, this is, what is uh, revered. And so we have to find a way to uh, be flexible with our identity. I remember coming from USC one day. I was in graduate school, young man who was uh, working security at the Shrine Auditorium. He said, hey, brother man. I said, yes. He said, uh, do you go to USC? I said, yes, I'm in graduate school at USC. He said, well, do you have to sell out to fit in? And my knee-jerk response was to say, no, 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 no. But then as I walked to my apartment, I said, well, Maybe selling out is a pejorative uh, a term, but I do think you have to be flexible in your identity. I mean, in the workplace, you have to be flexible. At home, in your relationships, you have to be flexible. So I think young black men uh, need to find a way to contradict the stereotypes. Instead of embracing and wallowing in the stereotypes unwittingly, we need to contradict the stereotypes. And we need to find a way to, as some people would say, play the game. Okay, we um, have about a minute left. Um, first thing we would like to ask you, is it possible that we could continue this conversation next week? Yes, 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 nope. I would love to. Okay, we'll get our producer on that, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk with you about that. Um, but one of the things, if you could take us out here, um, we've talked about a lot of the cause and effects, and again, I know a minute's a short time, but I just want to get it on your radar and thinking. Um, more about solution-based. How do we break that cycle? Um, how, is it, how do we keep our youth from embracing the, the, the thug image, knowing that that's headed straight to prison, which we're trying to break, and some of the societal factors? 
Well, I just think, uh, I, let me just give you a brief an anecdote. I was in uh, South Africa, and this uh, person, I looked out in the shanty towns, and I said, look, there's so much destitution, so much poverty, people living off of $1 a day. You have one out of four women infected with HIV AIDS. I said, no running water, no electricity. How do people live? How do you stay resilient? How do you keep your head up? How do you keep your spirit up? And this guy looked at me, who was a part of the Kosa tribe, and he said, Umbutu. And I said, Umbutu. He said, yes, Umbutu. I said, tell me about Umbutu. He, he said, Umbutu means when, you, when my neighbor's hungry, I feed him. When I'm hungry, he feeds me. He said, Umbutu is brotherhood, is sisterhood, is community. It's not enough. We got so many young black men out there who are not being raised. No guidance. It was uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson who said that geography is destiny. So you have blacks who are in, the, uh, in, in these vicious inner cities. They need mentors like me. They need mentors like you. They need mentors like James. They need mentors like uh, Clarence. They need mentors like Dr. Muhammad. We have to extend our outreach to the lump, what Marx called a lump and pro proletariat. Okay, thank you, and I look forward to that next week, talking with you again. Um, before we leave, um, Dr. Muhammad, do you have about – we got about 30 seconds. Can you just give yeah. us your thoughts? I, I just wanted to say that uh, – I've, I've been thinking about these same issues for a long time, Dr. Reese, and um, I wanted to say that, that one of the things that I'm coming to appreciate is honesty. And it's not just the honesty of telling a young black man that Ebonics won't get him a job or that uh, hypermasculinity uh, is self-destructive, but, but that, that, that you have to tell them that, that the system doesn't work in such a way that it doesn't discount it, but simply says, let's recognize it for what it is and get, get past it and, and beat it in a way that, that, um, that will benefit us. In other words, too many of us, like Juan Williams, like a Bill Cosby at the town hall level, just get into the tough love rhetoric. So I think right. we have to be honest with these young men and say, look, you're doing wrong, but society's doing wrong, and, and we have to beat this system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's look at the internal and external uh, forces. Let's not neglect the external forces. Most definitely. Dr. Muhammad, we'd also like to invite you to our next show. Would you care to join us? Yes, I would. Thank well, thank you. you very much. And again, we want to thank Dr. Renford Reese, author and California State Polytechnic University at Pomona professor, and Dr. Khalil Muhammad, IU professor of history, for engaging us and our listeners in this illuminating conversation. I not only look forward to next week's conversation, but I need to get reading these books, too. They are very, very interesting. Most definitely. This is Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 and live on the web at WFHB.org. As mentioned at the top of the hour, you're listening to a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two memorable interviews, one from 2010 featuring Dr. Khalil Muhammad and Renford Reese professor and author at California State Polytechnic University at Pomona. Round two of this discussion aired on November 20, 2006. Dr. Muhammad and Dr. Reese again engage in dialogue leading us through an introspective look at some of the manifested behaviors associated with young black males. Here again are our co-anchors conducting part two of this interview. 
for um, just a, an extension of a lot of the conversation that we had going on last week. And for some of our listeners who aren't quite for sure what's going on, we are talking primarily about the black male uh, identity and how a lot of our black male youth are looking towards this, I'm a thug, I'm hardcore, I'm real, and, uh, and, and images like that. Um, so one question that I want to start off that I was thinking about after the show last week was about the woman and how the woman plays a role in this black identity and how young black youth uh, fall into that and if the woman does have a play in how they fall into this black male identity. I think they do. I uh, remember giving a, uh, this is uh, Professor Reese, <clears throat> I remember giving a lecture at one of the high schools out here in the valley out in Los Angeles and uh, I uh, gave a lecture to about 200 uh, <clears throat> black male students, and then afterwards I gave a, a lecture to about 100 uh, African-American uh, females. And I said, if all of you in this room right now, if you were attracted to uh, young men that wore nice slacks, nice shirts, uh, ties, that dressed in a very professional way, then you would have a group of young men who would go around looking like me. But the fact is, I think young uh, uh, black women have embraced the same model, and they've said that they've attract they're attracted to these uh, this 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 gangster thug persona. You see it in the videos, whether it's MTV, uh, VH1, or BET. I mean, the uh, black female artists—they are not showing uh, young men coming up to them with a nice. Uh, suits on, giving them roses, what they're doing is they're showing these corn-rolled, um, uh, tattooed uh, gangster thugs. I mean, even Beyonce had a song about soldiers. She said she wanted a soldier. She wanted a thug. She wanted someone who had street credibility. Alicia Keys had a song about uh, uh, a thug, uh, uh, thug love. And so I think uh, black women especially are culpable for perpetuating this, uh, this cycle. So how exactly do you propose that black women should help? Well, I think they should stop. I mean, when you have all these misogynistic uh, songs, they should stop. They should stop singing it. They should protest like the, uh, the young women did down at Spelman when, uh, when uh, Nelly came. They protested Nelly coming there. They said, look, unless you clean up your act, we're not going to support you. I mean, why? You know, I talk about in American Paradox that uh, 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 Ludacris had a song called Move, B-I-T-C-H. And I was out back home in Atlanta with some of my high school buddies. We went out, and this song came on at this uh, place. We were kind of a uh, 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 disco place. And the women started singing the song verbatim, word for word. And I said, this is a tragedy. And they, they played it on uh, BET. And uh, I just think that uh, uh, blacks, to stand up, especially black women. Anything that's a misogynistic, anything that's not positive in terms of their uh, their uplift, they should protest like the women at uh, Spelman did. I mean, black women have so many opportunities, especially uh, artists, to talk about things that affect. I mean, you have HIV-AIDS affecting, uh, black women affected 13 times more by HIV-AIDS than, uh, than uh, white women. Somebody should be talking about this. Or else, if they're not talking about this in their lyrics, then they're losing what I call uh, their ly lyrical uh, currency. Uh, Dr. Reese, this is Jim Sims. How are you this evening? Great, great. How are you doing? Um, and again, w when you're looking at um, America and, and from a uh, profit standpoint, um, it, it seems to me that to reverse these trends would be for some of your major vehicles, such as BET and MTV and, and other as such 
type of venues to basically stop playing the type of music that we as a society or a black society would find offensive. And I, I just got to say it, that doesn't seem like a, a reality to me. But I mean, what other group would allow their women to get on television, on videos, and do the same thing that blacks are allowing their women to do? I mean, you, you don't see this on Korean television. You don't see it on Chinese television. You won't, a, a Japanese community would not allow their women to be exploited the same way. We're the only cultural group that I know of in the world that will allow their women to be exploited in this way. And the question is, why? These hip-hop artists have uh, probably more currency. They have a greater platform than any other uh, group in any other uh, genre in uh, American history. So my question is, if you've been restricted from, let's say, reading, uh, I would read all the time. If you've been re uh, restricted from expressing yourself, uh, I would ex express myself, my First Amendment rights, in very constructive ways. I mean, it, to me, we're losing... Uh, what, and my argument is be rebellious. If you want to be rebellious, be rebellious. I don't mind you being rebellious in terms of your lyrical content, but may, make sure you aim your lyrical bullets at the culprit. It's not your brother. It's not the people in your community. I mean, we have an unfair, unjust war going on. We're spending $300 billion on an unjust war in Iraq. Talk about the Iraq war. Let's talk about the school system. Let's talk about the uh, inequities in the schools. So what I'm saying is be rebellious. I'm, in, I'm, I'm endorsing being uh, rebe rebellious, but let's uh, make sure we aim our lyrical bullets at the, uh, the true culprits of our demise. Dr. Muhammad? Uh, nice to hear from you again, Dr. Reese. Just oh, wanted good. to jump Thank in you. for a moment and uh, talk about defining one's identity uh, as a negation of of a popular culture or mainstream society's expectations of you. I mean, there's a danger in that as well, right? That one is not in control of deciding what matters most to them. Because if, if group A says you can't read and group B then responds and says, well, we're going to read, then group A has set the agenda, even if it's in the reverse. So I think one of the dangers of taking the racial uplift argument to the extreme um, is uh, losing the agency of African Americans to think independently or in a sense outside of the box of white society. And, and unfortunately, uh, that's been commodified. I mean, I think you're absolutely right within uh, hip-hop culture today, uh, the, the sort of resistance notion, what Robin Kelly uh, calls infra-politics, uh, has been commodified and, and, and in, in some venues looks extremely grotesque uh, from perhaps the well-intentioned origins from which it derived. Um, so, so there's no disagreement there, but, but I think we do have to be careful um, in, in saying that the solution is that African Americans define their agenda as a negation of what white people think, think of them. Well, I mean, I think we do have uh, some autonomy in terms of uh, defining our identities. I mean, it's almost like we always have to have this past, this, this, what I call this realness litmus test. And in American Paradox, I talk about uh, Jim Brown, a famous NFL player, uh, actor, who created this wonderful program to stop gang violence in Los Angeles called Amir I Can. My father, who's uh, one of the first journalists, black journalists, to write for a major newspaper in the South Atlanta Journal-Constitution, was being honored as a, uh, in the Hall of Fame for, I think it was a 100% wrong club in Atlanta. And so Jim Brown was also being honored. They sat at the same table. Jim said, I mean, my father said he had a son who was at USC in graduate school in L.A. 
And Jim said, well, tell him to give me, uh, give me a call. So I gave Jim a call. He said, come up, we're having a, uh, a celebration. I thought it would be people like Bill Cosby, Eddie Murphy, the, the who's who in, uh, in uh, black Hollywood. But it turned out to be, at this party, uh, Crips and Bloods. <clears throat> so I remember walking in there, and all of these young men were giving their testimonies. Later that night, Jim said, I want you to come back for an advisory board meeting. So I came back. There were about eight of us at this advisory board meeting for Amir I can. We went around the room. The first person said, hey, my name is uh, Highway. I'm an A-Tray Crip. Uh, I did a five-year bid in Folsom. And then you heard the rest of the guys say, yeah, 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 just like he said he was a Phi Beta Kappa. The next person said, you know, my name is such and such. I'm a deuce, deuce. I did, you know, uh, a 10-year bid at uh, Sentinella. The guys, yeah, yeah. So it was my time. I was about the fifth person in line. I raised my hand. I said, my name is Renford Reese. I'm a second-year graduate student at USC. And it was just like I said, hi, my name is Opie Taylor. I represent the Boy Scouts of America. <laughs> I felt so alienated. And afterwards, after the meeting, no one would talk to me. I went up to Jim to shake his hand, told him I wanted to get involved in any capacity. He, he shoved me off. I went over. And so I went over to talk to one of the other young men in the uh, program. He kind of uh, shoved me off. And I, I, I really was disgruntled. I felt dis, dis, uh, disoriented. And uh, so it made me really question, what does it mean to be real in, in the black community? Here I was, somebody who was, uh, you know, dedicated, committed to this cause of uh, anti-gang violence, but yet I was shunned. So I, I think we do have some autonomy over how we define ourselves. Okay, for the benefit of our listeners, we are talking this evening with Professor Renford Reese, um, who's an author and California State Polytechnic University professor, and we also have in the studio IU Professor of History, um, that's Indiana University Professor of History, um, Dr. Khalil Muhammad. Um, professor Reese, um, I, I'm more of a solutions-oriented type person, and I don't know what you may or may not know much about Bloomington, Indiana. Um, we think it's a pretty liberal um, city with a lot of um, uh, uh, programs to what we think would better society. Uh, we have held forums on the, the disparate suspension and expulsion rates in our local school system. Uh, we have highlighted certain things uh, job-related, um, uh, these disparities in that area. Um, so I guess the long and short of it is what I'm wanting. It, it seems in order to, again, reverse these trends, um, we have to have strong African-American organizations to basically denounce these or offer an alternative, um, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm also wondering, that there's a couple of concepts, I think, that, that we really don't talk about but I think is at the core of the issue here um, from an acceptance standpoint. And that is uh, what I believe is the concept of white privilege in America, um, as well as what we all know to be um, some institutionalized racist and social policies. Um, it, do you care to comment on that? Well, first of all, I think that is a, a paradox because you do have so many worthy black organizations out there who are dedicated and committed to the uplift of the black community. You have the Amachi program started by Wilson Good. You have 100 Black Men, Concerned Black Men. You have Cap Alpha Psi fraternity along with the other black fraternities. Uh, Cap Alpha Psi, I know, is strong. It was founded in, in Bloomington. I'm a, a member of Cap Alpha Psi uh, fraternity. So I know you have all of these uh, various uh, outreach uh, organizations, but then the question is, why is there still this just 
burgeoning problem uh, with a young black man. And I think one problem with the black churches and some of the other kind of elite organizations is that they've embraced this type of elitist mindset, and they've not reached out to what Marx calls uh, the lumpen proletariat. And I think that's the beautiful, inspirational part about the Nation of Islam. They're the only group that I know of that can go into the, uh, the walls of uh, the prisons and totally transform these black men. And so I remember when I was uh, mentoring uh, Rodney King from uh, 1997 to 2000, I invited Rodney to speak to my uh, class. He came. He didn't even know how to tie his tie. I tied his tie for him. Uh, we hit it off. And for about uh, three years, I uh, gave him books to read. I taught him how to sw swing a golf club. We played tennis together. And so when people call me and they ask me about Rodney, I say, well, it, it really is a, a tragedy with, uh, that's reflective of uh, black, uh, black organizations. I say, here was a person that he was beaten one night, and all of a sudden we expected him to be this icon for racial reconciliation and for police reform. And he was a person that was never trained to be a Martin Luther King-type figure. So it was, I thought, the responsibility of the Urban League, the NAACP, the various black organizations to embrace Rodney, to make sure his uh, money was invested properly, to make sure he got his GED, to make sure he was able to articulate his experience. But they dropped the ball. Why? One reason, I think, is because they looked at him and labeled him as being incorrigible. And so he was someone they looked at as being on the fringe, and they didn't want to be involved with him. So, hence... We're here, Rodney gets in, in, in trouble with the uh, law periodically, and everybody's embarrassed. Well, we should be embarrassed because of the NAACP and the various uh, civil rights organizations dropping the ball and not embracing him. And I think that's fundamental and really emblematic of the problem that we have with the uh, young black men today. We've labeled them as being incorrigible, and the, uh, the black bourgeois, the black middle class, have basically dropped the ball. So... Um, I think a lot of that has to do with always having a comparison of, of what is what is actually like socially correct, what is politically correct, what is the actual norms. I was reading in your book, and just to sum it up, you were talking about when your friend came to pick you up from the airport, and you were you were talking about how he greeted you, and he said, "That's my dog. What's up? What's up, my boy? That's my dog." And you asked him to chill out and he said for what he said because there are people around and you then went on to say that whites are intimidated by the rawness of black cultural rituals do you think that maybe organizations like the NAACP and other black organizations fear um, maybe embracing people like Rodney King because of the fact they don't um, actually situate themselves within what is considered social etiquette and what's considered to be the norm, or whatever in quotations the norm is, and how can you ask them to do that when, you know, comments are made like you have to be respectful of their sensitivities, or who is creating what is considered sensitive? But I, mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, it's a it's a complex question, but it's a uh, it's a brilliant question because I think. I mean, if you look at the NAACP, you should ask, what's their o overall objective? I mean, when they invited the president, someone who had turned them down multiple times to come and speak at their annual uh, banquet, it shows you that the NAACP has really lost their identity. I mean, here's a person that's done absolutely nothing for the black community. And it's like a kid who is clamoring for the attention of an abusive parent, so was the uh, NAACP reaching out for a person who was strumming a, a guitar during Hurricane Katrina while blacks were left to die. So they reached out to this man. And I think, uh, especially with the NAACP, they're in an identity crisis. I think they're 
uh, mostly concerned with throwing galas and having all of these uh, type of uh, elaborate banquets, and they're not in the trenches. Although I'm critical of Jim Brown and the way he treated me uh, with the Amer I Can program, I have my hat off to Jim Brown because he's in the trenches. When I ask uh, those young men, 756 young black men that I interviewed, uh, whether they knew Kwasi and Fumi, only a handful of uh, young black men knew Kwasi and Fumi. At that time, he was the director, executive director of the NAACP, but they all knew Jim Brown. Why? Because Jim was there. He's in the trenches. He's fighting for their causes. And the NAACP, they're not in the trenches right now. Therefore, to some, to many, they're irrelevant. Um, I'll turn it over to Dr. Khalil Muhammad. Um, I do have one comment before that, though. Um, and you mentioned the, the, the leader of the NAACP. And one of the things when we were talking about your real survey, um, I would think that he would be more along the lines of a David Robinson or a Tiger Woods as opposed to an Allen Iverson. And if, in fact, the theory in your books are correct, and, and I believe they are, and I need to let you know we agree with, with what you say, uh, but how can young blacks have any respect um, for for that leader if, in fact, he doesn't fit into their real identity? And then after you respond, we'll pass it over to Dr. Okay. Muhammad. Okay, you want me to, this is Renford, you want me to respond? Yes, sir, go ahead. Okay, yeah, I just think that uh, you have to be visible. I mean, you have to be, you know, you have to almost be annoying. It's like the teacher that's always on the student. It's like the police officer who all, who, who's always in the community you know, trying to find out what's going on. You have to be in their faces. You have to be there where they say, look, this person is annoying, but yet they know that person cares. The NAACP, Kwasi and Fumi, uh, not to point out Kwasi and Fumi because I think he's a, a legitimate uh, black leader, but I'm just saying the NAACP is not relevant because they're not annoying. They're not in the faces of these young black men. And you have uh, programs like American, uh, Brotherhood, Brotherhood Crusade, they're in the prisons. They're dealing, they're coming up with reintegration programs to try to reintegrate these young black men back into society. I mean, this is a serious issue, and I think people should be, uh, the black community should be paying attention to. I want to <clears throat> jump in uh, at this point and push this further by suggesting that you're absolutely right, uh, Dr. Reese, when you refer to this dichotomy between uh, elite blacks and the young men whom you know intimately in the prisons of California. I had an experience here at Bloomington a year ago at the Men of Color Leadership Conference, a student-run conference here at IU, uh, which the goal of the conference is to raise issues like this to the student uh, population and to encourage activism uh, down the road. After I gave a presentation that talked about many of these same issues that you focus on in your book, Prison Race, uh, about the high incarceration rate of African Americans rooted in a criminal justice system that is pursuing counterproductive policies um, that smack of racism, both historical and contemporary. Uh, so I was doing some of that same work that you do in this book. And afterwards, a young, well, I, I want to call him a young man. He was, <laughs> he was a, a senior. Um, a senior man came up to me, and he said, Young man, I appreciate uh, all those things you had to say about the criminal justice system, but don't you think we worry too much about those jailbirds? They had their chance. We need to focus more on saving the good kids. Now, for me, this was shocking uh, because it was the first time that I had faced head-on what I call the Cosby effect uh, in society. I faced someone who could hear 
everything that I said with regard to the evidence working against African Americans, what you call uh, the free felon phenomena, those individuals who, who serve their time, who pay their debt to society, and then have to carry the burden of invisible punishment uh, from society at not being able to vote, uh, not having access to uh, good jobs, being excluded from public housing. All those things are additional punishment placed on African Americans. So I said, in my, to my mind, I said, this is an amazing phenomenon that that doesn't matter, that the racism, that the additional burdens placed on African Americans after serving time don't matter because at the end of the day, this line separating the law-abiding and the so-called criminal or delinquent for African Americans serves the middle class. Yeah, it has, right. it so has a, now we're talking about a, a class issue, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's fascinating about that line, it's problematic for three reasons. One, it abandons young people who need the support of people with resources in society the most. Two, it constructs a false dichotomy. Since since by every indication, the line is thinning, right? It's actually disappearing. So the very people who are so-called the jailbirds are living in some people's living rooms right now, and they don't even know it. And for the third reason, this us versus them mentality was a foundational problem in our communities, foundational in the slave cabins between the House and the field Negroes, which everyone knows something about, foundational in the Jim Crow era as epitomized between the differences in Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. Now, Du Bois was in every way an elitist. Booker T. Washington was a man in the trenches. The problem is that both of them relied upon this notion of a good black example, which should lead the way for those who were not. My problem with this is that who benefits from that dichotomization? White folks benefit from it. Because at the end of the day, it's white folks who exploit the very arguments that we make against our people in order to perpetuate the very policies that subjugate our people. Right. So the NAACP's elitism has a long history, in fact. The NAACP used to actually cherry pick its its uh, so-called victims of civil rights abuses. They would go to great lengths to screen the backgrounds of people whose, whose problems were, were not in question, whether they'd been beaten over the head by a police uh, uh, baton or whether they had been nearly lynched by a southern lynch mob. What happened wasn't the problem. What problem the problem was whether they were respectable enough to be the face of a civil rights campaign. So we've been living with this dichotomy for an extremely long time. and and. What I'm trying to say in one sense is that it's caught up with us because now the people who need us most are not getting us. I'll end with this quote by Du Bois. He said, in America, it is nothing easier to do for anyone than to accuse a black man of crime. And in that very same statement, he was talking about the absolute need for middle class organizations like the NAACP, for which he was about to leave in 1934, to go and visit people in prison and to reconnect with them because those were the people who, we need, who needed the most attention from us. Well said. Well said. Well said. Uh, we have about two minutes, uh, Professor Reese. Um, can you just share with us some, some final thoughts as we head on off the air, and we, again, really want to thank you for joining us this evening. I mean, I just want to say what I said the last time. I always like to share my, uh, my story about uh, being in uh, South Africa, uh, flying into Cape Town and, and seeing how beautiful Cape Town was, and then being able to go out to the uh, shanties of Gukuletu, Crossroads, and Langa, and seeing uh, people who had no running water, people who had no electricity, people who uh, 
one out of four women living with uh, HIV AIDS. And asking this person who was a part of the Kosa tribe whether, how, I said how, how do you keep your head up? How do you stay resilient? How do the kids uh, play soccer in the field? And he looked at me and he said, Umbutu. And I said, Umbutu. He said, yes, Umbutu. I said, tell me about Umbutu. He said, Umbutu means when my neighbor's hungry, I feed him. When I'm hungry, he feeds me. He said, Umbutu is brotherhood, is sisterhood, is community. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to embrace this, uh, this concept of Umbutu. Umbutu does not stop at the, uh, the black country club. It doesn't stop at the elite black church. Umbutu goes into the prisons. It goes out into the community, and it reaches and touches everyone. And I think ultimately that's what we're going to be judged by, not by what type of house we lived in in the suburb or what type of uh, private school we sent our kid to. We, we'll be uh, judged by our deeds and by our heart and by uh, our dedication and commitment. Dr. Reese, before we, we, uh, we end this conversation, I, I wanted to just ask a question about your survey results. You point out that African Americans and whites, Latinos and Asians, have roughly similar problems with the criminal justice system and pointing out racial bias. The differences, however, in the degree to which African Americans think racism exists are far greater than any other group. You cite 96% in your polling data versus 80% of whites. But I read this to basically say that white people are not ignorant about race, racism in the criminal justice system. And I wonder then if your survey findings surprised you, because if we are trying to educate people, but they already know that racism is a problem, then why haven't things changed? And I'll, and I'll finish with this quote by President Clinton in 85. He said, quote, every white person here and in America needs to take a moment to think how he or she would feel if one in three white men were in similar circumstances. That was 10 years ago. Right. And let me just end with this. Uh, if you look at the uh, Rockefeller uh, law in New York, it says if you get caught possessing two ounces of narcotics, if you get caught selling one ounce, you get... 15 years of life in prison. 97% of uh, the people who've been prosecuted under, the, under this law have been prosecuted for minor drug violations. So you have, I asked the uh, hypothetical question, let's go and get everyone, all the drug offenders at Harvard, at Yale, at UCLA, USC, and let's lock them up, first time offense, 15 years of life. I mean, if we did that today, tonight we would have a revolution. There's no talk of incremental change. There's no talk of uh, this, we need to come up with a rational policy to deal with this crisis. So what I'm saying is, and this is what I say in prison race, is if you're locking up our kids, that's somebody's brother, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's uncle, that's somebody's role model, that's somebody's mentor, 15 years to life for a first-time offense, why aren't you locking up the biology major at Harvard 15 years to life for the same offense? We hope you enjoyed this special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two memorable interviews from 2010. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Production support comes from WFHB's news director, Joe Crawford. Bring It On's engineering team is Floyd Hobson and Jim Thrasher. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effion. Be sure to tune in next Monday, May 8th at 6 p.m or another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.